Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, this uh, little fact about me will come to no surprise to you. Um, I love nothing more than a really good jumpsuit. I don't even know how many I own. (laughs) And that's just one reason that I'm excited to talk about today about the iconic late 70s and 1980s brand Parachute, because jumpsuits were one of their staple lexicons across the entire existence of the brand. And I just want to add on jumpsuits for both men and women. And I'm going to cite today's guests on some of her musing on this topic. She says, Quote, the brand's genderless jumpsuits with broad padded shoulders and asymmetrical zippers were an amalgamation of references including space-age fashion of 1960s designers Pierre Cardin and André Carrège, utilitarian workwear, and military flight suits, end quote. And what is not to love about all of that? Absolutely. And we also really love the fashion press's descriptions of parachute fashions from this time, calling them everything from quote unquote galactic cowboys to Blade Runner goes to Tokyo or quote something between a samurai and a rugby player. (laughs) You guys are starting to get the picture, I bet. And I would also just like to add to those descriptions think the new wave music scene also dress listeners. And that's actually something that our guest today is going to flesh out with us in terms of Parachute's connections to underground music subcultures of the 1980s. So a very warm welcome back to a past dressed guest and actually one of my best friends from grad school, Alexis Walker. And Alexis joined us on season one oh so many years ago for an episode on the history of the Wonder Bra. And today, she currently serves as the Assistant Curator of Dress, Fashion, and Textiles at the McCord Museum in Montreal, Canada, where the exhibition Parachute, Subversive Fashion of the 80s is currently on view through April 24th, 2022. And she's also the author of a wonderful exhibition catalog, which accompanies the exhibition. Alexis, welcome back to Dressed. Alexis, welcome back to the show. Uh, Some of our Dressed listeners may remember you from season one when you were one of our very first guests. Yay. Well, congratulations. <laughs> you, you guys are over 200 episodes now, huh? We're technically over 300 episodes at this point. So. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm very honored to be back as a, as a repeat guest. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. And, and we are going to talk about Parachute today, obviously. But before we do that, I was hoping that you might share a little bit about the McCord Museum, its collection, and its exhibition mission, because there's actually a tie-in between today's topic and what the McCord does specifically as an institution. Sure. So I am the Associate Curator of Dress, Fashion, and Textiles at the McCord Museum in Montreal. And, and we are Montreal's Social History Museum. We have the world's largest collection of Canadian-made and designed fashion, and and our mandate is really to document the history of fashion in Montreal. So, you know, we collect the work of Montreal designers, uh, manufacturers, couturiers, 
retailers such as boutiques and department stores. So yeah, that's it. I mean, it's it's uh, it's Montreal centric and and by extension Quebec and and Canada as well. Right now, we're in the middle of our exhibition, Parachutes, Subversive Fashion of the 80s, which started in November and is on until April 24th. And for me, you know, Parachute is so exciting because it represents one of, if not the greatest Montreal and and Canadian fashion success story ever. You know, they were international fashion leaders and really at the the cutting edge of design of the 1980s. Mm Our exhibition really came about because of designer Nicola Pelli. So she still lives in Montreal. She was one of of two. Her and Harry Parnas were the co-founders and co-designers of the brand. But in 2019, she gave her archive to the museum. Oh, wow. Yeah, her archive was enormous. I think it it was composed of over 800 garments. And I mean, countless bankers boxes of photos of sketches, business documents, all kinds of ephemeral materials. Plus she had a big collection of videos. So, you know, we, we were able to draw mostly from that for our exhibition. And because of, of her generosity, we now have the, the biggest collection of parachutes, the most extensive collection of parachutes in the world, which is a big, a big, uh, you know, plus in addition to our collection. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's, yeah, um, as curators, we all know that it is so much easier when you're curating from within your own collection. <laughs> No kidding. I mean, this was like, (laughs) I mean, it's a, it's a treasure. It's a treasure trove and it's one-stop shopping. Like I didn't have to look anywhere. Right. So finding actual garments that you find production sketches for more artistic sketches, business documents, promotional photos, like it was just so complete. So not only do we have a really visually stunning show, but you know, we were able to really precisely date garments in some cases down to collections so yeah, you're right. As, as a curator, fashion historian, it really doesn't get better than than that. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit more about Parachute's founders, how they came together, and what was their vision for Parachute as a brand within this bigger Canadian fashion industry? Well, neither of them are Canadian. That's that's kind ah. of important because, because, you know, Parachute is a Canadian success story, but it's also not. You know, it's as much Montreal as it is a New York thing, let's say, but, you know, we can, we can get into that later. Anyways, the Parachute was founded in Montreal around 1977-78 by British fashion designer Nicola Pelli and American architect and urban planner Harry Parnas. So Nicola had done her fashion training at the Kingston College of Art in London and, you know, really grew up and came of age in the late 60s in England. She told me in conversations that, you know, she found her way to Montreal. She liked Montreal. And as a, as a young British fashion designer at that time, easily found work within Montreal's garment industry. You know, everyone was looking to get young British designers working for them. And at the time, Montreal was one of the biggest manufacturing centers in North America. At the same time, you have Harry Parnas arriving here in Montreal around the time of Expo 67 and the construction boom surrounding that. Harry had a Master of Architecture from Columbia University and a Master of Urban Planning from Harvard. And during the whole time that Parachute was in business, so 1977 to 1993, he was Professor of Architecture and Urban Planning at the Université de Montréal and also an adjunct professor of architecture at McGill. Oh my gosh, he was hella busy. Yeah, 
No, 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 always. I mean, he's really inspiring, motivated man. And I think he was always, even before Parachute, he was always interested in how design can positively impact societal change and also the building of community through the creation of stimulating city environments. The two of them met at Le Chateau. So Le Chateau is or was, it recently closed. It was a, a Canadian-wide retail chain that, that was basically what would become fast fashion. So it was a, a manufacturer and design company that sold trendy youth-driven clothing. You know, Nicola said at one point that, that sh- she really liked Le Chateau because even though they were a mass retailer, they believed in design. And they always hired very cool young people who were not necessarily fashion people, mm-hmm. but, uh, but people who, who just had good personal style and, and were like hip young people. And it's funny because Le Chateau, through our research at the McCord, comes up all the time as, you know, Parachute is one of many success stories that, that have come out of Le Chateau. Uh, but there's many local designers who have had their start there. Harry Parnas was vice president of Le Chateau, and he was designing stores for the brand across the country. But as he had his own architectural practice, as he was teaching at the same time, plus designing Le Chateau stores, things were getting a bit out of control schedule-wise. Yeah. Uh, he was also a little bit critical of, of Le Chateau's clothes at the time. He thought that maybe the clothes didn't gel with his retail environments. So the, the management of Le Chateau, a guy named Herschel Siegel, the, the owner and founder, challenged him to do better, to try des- his own hand at designing clothes. So that's where Nicola came in. Nicola was the design coordinator at Le Chateau, and the two of them started to design these mini collections of military and sportswear-inspired ensembles. Uh, it, it, it really wasn't for the Le Chateau client, so they eventually left on their own uh, in 1977 to found Parachute. But I think what's interesting is that they really came at it from two different ways. Harry was very conceptual, whereas Nicola was more the the traditionally trained fashion designer, also very knowledgeable with fabric. But they were both inspired by the same art, architecture, graphic design, and and clothing. So they left on their own in 1977 with help from Herschel Siegel, the founder of Le Chateau, and, and it really just took off from there. Well, and you know, you mentioned that they were inspired by, you know, art and architecture, and I would also argue music, right? Because that was kind of like a big part of their customer base, that the club and music scene was kind of critical to the brand's burgeoning success. So what was the music scene in Montreal like in the late 70s and early 80s? And how does Parachute kind of fit into that? Well, I think there's, I mean, there's several factors as to why at that point in time, Montreal was this like creative hotspot and a, and a nightlife destination. So, you know, in the 1970s, you have really difficult economic times everywhere. But, you know, it was the same. It was the same thing here. But obviously, from economic hard times comes creativity and very cheap living. Like rent at that point in Montreal was dirt cheap. So, so you could technically be an artist maybe pull some money from unemployment insurance and maybe work <laughs> a little bit and, and still have plenty of time to dedicate yourself to creative practice. Montreal also has lots of universities, which I think is a factor because you have tons of young people living here. And like I said, there's, there's just always been lots of artists, musicians, and, and creative types around. Uh, in terms of the nightclub scene, I think Montreal had been a major center for disco music since the early 70s. And again, there's many factors there. One of them is our lax liquor laws. You know, another is our late night closing. 
But I read, you know, at one source in my research just maybe talked about disco music as a type of music that isn't lyric heavy. So that for an audience like what you have here, a bilingual audience, it works really well if you're an Anglophone, if you're a Francophone. So, you know, by the end of the 70s, when you have Parachute kind of coming onto the scene, you have a really vibrant nightclub scene, but you also have this really vibrant new wave scene. And they weren't the only ones to kind of emerge from this subcultural scene. You have bands like Men Without Hats. Mm -hmm. You have Edward Locke's punk rock contemporary dance troupe, La 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 Human Steps, in particular, the dancer Louise Le Cavalier. So I think there was, there was a lot, there just was like a lot of creative energy. And I think Harry and Nicola recognized the innovative nature of subculture in general, right? Like the, 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 the kind of avant-garde look associated with subcultural scenes. And in this case, it was New Wave. And, you know, he really eloquently said in one interview with Parachute, all they did was simply follow the music. But I, but I have to say, just add on, like Montreal, you know, has been this way again, too. Like when I moved here at the end of the 90s, the early 2000s, it was the same thing all over again. Like lots of musicians, cheap rent. I think when I first moved here, I had a four bedroom apartment for $600 a month. I know. I remember you telling me this in the past and my jaw like <laughs> dropped. <laughs> yeah. So you don't, so, so again, like in the early 2000s, you have bands like Arcade Fire and Wolf Parade coming out of this scene here. I think Montreal has just maybe always been this young, creative kind of countercultural place. And, and, and again, I think a lot of it's just tied to the economics. And fashion is always going to fit perfectly in that mix, you know. One of the things that's always a little bit tricky for us on Dressed is really conveying a visual phenomenon like style or fashion via an audio format. So how would you describe for our listeners the overall aesthetic of the Parachute brand and also maybe touch on a little bit about who their customer base was? I mean, I've kind of called Parachute throughout this whole research process postmodern proto-streetwear. Nice. <laughs> you know, I think, I think what they were doing, they were using a bricolage approach to the, the designing, which definitely has connections to a postmodern design practice, but also subculture too, right? Like, this, this kind of cherry picking and then putting together a look of combining maybe disparate elements. I think you also see the coded nature of subculture being used by Nicola and Harry. So, you know, the two of them were really interested in visual communication and semiotics. So, so Parachute is, a lot of the clothes are really loaded with symbolism and multi-layered meaning. In my research, I identified several kind of cornerstones or hallmarks of the parachute style. So ones that were already present in the work they were doing for Le Chateau, like we said before, is military uniforms and, and active sportswear, sports uniforms, but also Japanese traditional clothing. I think Harry and Nicola at this time were doing a lot of traveling to Asia and Japan in particular for production and fabric sourcing. And I think just while they were there visiting museums, things like kimono and samurai armor had a really profound impact on them. Another kind of cornerstone that I've called Outlaws and Rebels, which is, you know, kind of anti-heroes from classic Hollywood of the 30s to the 60s. So bikers, gangsters, movie stars like Marlon Brando and The Wild One or, or James Dean um, and jazz musicians. And then also just this, the notion of androgyny 
and finally, I think, and again, this comes back to Harry as an architect, just this, this architectural influence over everything. So really strong silhouettes, clean lines. One of the people who I interviewed, this guy named Montgomery Fraser, who was the, the creative director of the Soho store and actually went on to be the fashion director of MTV after his time with Parachute. He said that you could always recognize a parachute outfit from across the street, just based purely on the monochromatic palette and, and the, the importance of silhouette. I think, you know, to give it a bit of context, Parachute was working in the same vein as, say, somebody like Willie Smith and Willie Ware mm-hmm. or Thierry Muglet, Claude Montana, silhouette-wise, maybe not client or customer-wise. Definitely the Japanese designers of the early 80s, right? Yoji and Ray and and um, Isimiyake. But I wouldn't say they were copying. I think they were just really kind of tapped into the zeitgeist of the 80s, like a lot of these designers, you know? Yeah, the parachute aesthetic is very clear when you know it. (laughs) Yeah, and I think, you know, the clothing was meant to really communicate empowerment and confidence. And I think when you read a lot of the press, Harry and Nicola were describing their work as things like urban armor or advanced fashion or, you know, clothing for modern heroes. And I think, you know, their primary customer base was people like them and people like the the young people they were seeing in subcultural scenes in Montreal and, and New York, right? So musicians, artists, creative people are just kind of cool street kids. But a secondary level of clientele that came several years later was basically everybody else, right? They really tapped into the mainstream as well without losing their their edgy coolness. So the clientele was eventually so broad, especially in places like New York. You had everything from Upper East Side ladies to suburban teen wannabes. Everybody came to Parachute looking for for a piece of this, this kind of cool allure that they created. Yeah, well, and you used the word androgyny earlier, and also you just said it was for everybody. And I think that's so fascinating seeing that in the 1980s, because you note in the book, you said, Parachute celebrated gender ambiguity and earned itself a reputation early on for being a go-to label for androgynous fashion. And Parnas had also stated in the past that he felt design was inherently political. So... How important was this androgyny and like how subversive was that in the 80s? Because that was nearly 50 years ago at this point. Yeah, that's crazy. Almost 50 years. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think, I think the androgyny connects back to maybe the interpretive nature of Parachute. Like both Harry and Nicola were very clear in conversations that they, they never wanted to impose looks on anyone. This wasn't like top to toe dressing, you know, what, what they did is almost provo- like they designed separates and it was up to you, the client to almost complete the design process. It was up to you to build your own look, depending on how you felt that day. You know, at one point they said something along the lines of, you know, that they provided a, a, a vocabulary, but it's up to the client to make their own language from that vocabulary. So I think androgyny to me represents a bit this open-ended aspect of dressing in parachute. Stores were always merchandised so that you never had gender segregation, like men's and women's was all mixed together because they thought it was weird that like shopping is a social activity that you go into a store and all the men are on one side, all the women are on the other. <laughs> well, that's that's it. The architect, urban planner in him, he's thinking that No, through. that's it. <laughs> 
but but I think also two thirds of the collection were unisex, and I think that connects back to this foundation of uniform dressing, right? Like military clothes and sports uniforms. So you actually have you have like unisex and androgyny at play in these clothes, and I think parachutes androgyny was really encouraging almost like role reversal, right? So they wanted men to embrace an exhibitionism in dress and a flamboyance in dress that usually you would see traditionally reserved for women's fashion. So lots of colors lot and lots of like almost women's dress making techniques, lots of draping, the use of crepes in mm-hmm. men's fashion, for example. And then the flip side was that, you know, they really wanted women in, you know, what we could call like power suits, right? So strong, assertive silhouettes in dark colors with big shoulders. I mean, obviously in the 80s is a time when you see more and more women entering high power leadership roles and corporate roles. And I think there were, they, they had this desire to empower women to really, you know what I mean, own, own their success and own their, their personal power. But it's interesting, I think, because one of the models that I spoke to, a male model who worked for the brand, really wanted to stress that especially from the men's side of things, that dressing in parachute at this time was, was far outside of the mainstream, right? Like it was, it was not what everybody was doing. But at the same time, you also see, I think, within pop stars, like if you look at pop music at that time, you know, you have these hyper-masculine, like hetero bands like Poison, who are wearing as much <laughs> makeup and... <laughs> Hairspray, you know, as someone like Cindy Lauper. Yeah, we actually talked about this on our um, Red Menace episode, which is about the history of lipstick. Yeah, we we got into that whole hairband makeup wearing conversation, which is fascinating. So, listeners, if you want to think more about that, go back to that episode. <laughs> so, I think, like, I think there was things at play in the eighties. So, like this, this maybe gender fluidity that you saw amongst pop stars, you know, from like Boy George to Annie Lennox, like all of this kind of gender bending that was going on. But I think at the same time, with the rise of, say, yuppies and young urban professionals, this really questioning of traditional gender roles, like why should we get married? Why should we have kids when you can go out and, and focus totally on, on career and success, right? So, so I, think, I think at that time in the 80s, you see this, this destabilizing of a lot or a questioning of a lot of maybe traditional gender roles. Yeah, fascinating. Parachute clothing was meant to signify a youthful vitality, rebellion, empowerment, and self-confidence. Like I think all of these kind of disparate styles working together was meant to communicate this almost like radical confidence in yourself. I think also the stores that Harry Parnas designed were really celebrated alternative lifestyles and, and, uh, you know, an affront to conventional lifestyles as well. I think Harry saw design as a way to take a stand and and to revolt against convention and to kind of make your own rules, like to inspire people to make their own rules. And I have a feeling he'd been like that his whole life. (laughs) You know, I think (laughs) I found a quote from the founder of Le Chateau, uh, Herschel Siegel, who said something along the lines, Harry had always been a rebellious person. You know, his stores had had really concrete social goals in, in terms of they were meant to be urban meeting places, almost like a salon or a piazza where people could meet other people and take part in almost like a staged subcultural scene. But at the same time, he saw his store as the design lab and a place where you could educate the masses about good design. I have to say, you know, we, Harry Parnas sadly passed away in 2021 before the, our book and our exhibition was open. 
but we we were lucky enough to get to Florida where he was living in 2019 to interview him. And I have to say it was by far one of the most interesting interviews I've I've done in all of my kind of curatorial career. You know, he was a really smart guy. But at the at the same time, like I said, he was he was a rebel. He was a rebel at heart, and and uh, and yeah, it was really like it was a pleasure to 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 meet him, especially like I said, as someone who was working in fashion but wasn't a fashion designer, and all of this kind of conceptual architectural theory that that got infused into this fashion brand, and 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 I think is why it's just so interesting and captivating. It looks really good but it's, it has very strong messages and concepts behind it. Yeah, and very much the interiors of the boutiques were working in concert with the clothing that was inside them. It was like this holistic, immersive experience, really. Yeah, and I think, again, like it comes, it comes back to Harry, right? Like he talked a lot about these skins, these layers of design. So like second skin is fashion, Third skin is architecture and fourth skin is the city at large, right? And that when you thoughtfully combine these layers together, you, you create urban theater, right? Like you create spon- spaces for spontaneous interaction in visually stunning environments with very attractive, cool people occupying space in really attractive ways, right? <laughs> um, so, so really what the stores did was they sold an alternative lifestyle or a countercultural experience. You could go in and buy a t-shirt for $20, but at the same time you were, you were buying a piece of cool, right? This is like experiential retail. He created essentially staged underground subcultural scenes. It was totally orchestrated, but it was kind of authentic at the same time. Yeah. On top of the space, you have music, you have really attractive sales staff dressed cool, hanging out. So it created this very potent scene. And, and, you know, I think at the same time, the aesthetic of the store spaces, this, this high-tech, industrial, minimal space, they were gritty. They, they were meant to look a bit like an art gallery mixed with a nightclub. And I think there was really two stores in particular that, that sold this fantasy so well and really set the tone for everything else. I think the first was their very first store in downtown Montreal on Crescent Street that was basically in a boiler room, like hidden behind a courtyard no sign, no nothing. Like, so in traditional retailing, this would expel disaster. But for them, it worked in that customers felt like they were finding something, right? That you were discovering something hidden. And it was this a bit the same thing in Soho. They were one of the first stores to open on Worcester Street back when Soho was still quite sketchy and run down. We're speaking of Soho, New York, not Soho, London. Soho, New York. Yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it was the same thing there. Like super cheap, enormous space. At, that that just really sold this countercultural alternative lifestyle so well. And then after that, they were able to open consecutive stores in much more upscale neighborhoods, but never lose this, this edgy appeal. You know, one, one notable store was the store in Beverly Hills, for example, which was this beautiful kind of huge concrete space. But that store makes an appearance in Bretty Stanellis' book, Less Than Zero, right? So mm-hmm. for, for me, it's just so interesting when you really start looking, like there's so many tendrils from this story into and connecting to all these like important pop culture, either events or, you know, artworks or whatever of, of the era. It's really fascinating uh, kind of how deep it goes, you know, for a brand that's kind of forgotten nowadays, like, it was really 
I think, like I said, part of the the pop culture and the zeitgeist of of the eighties. Maybe slightly forgotten, but still much by loved by many people. <laughs> yeah, I think people who know it and remember it really like it, it. It was funny in my research when you talk to people who were just shoppers at the store, and the amount of people are like, "Oh, I bought this." in this year for this price and wore it to this event. Like it was clothing, I think that had, that people had this emotional connection to, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm curious, how, how did they, as they began to expand rapidly, and at some point they expanded to Asia as well, how did they negotiate that balance of underground cool with their growing international presence? Well, I think, I think it's really that. I think it was, it, they, they really succeeded at balancing, at balancing these opposing forces of underground and mainstream. Because I think early on, they recognized that if you want to be a truly authentic underground brand, there's not that many people who are going to come shopping. And it's usually the most underground and, and you know, the most subcultural that can't afford designer clothes. Like you need the mainstream to support a fashion brand that wants to make money and make an impact. To me, I think the the factor, the the, the single factor that contributed to their success and allowed them to to achieve this balance was the choice to open in New York on Worcester Street in 1980. I think, you know, they had a 20,000 square foot huge store space in, in Soho at a time when all that was there was artists and art galleries and a few Places like Dean and DeLuca was already there and there was some small stores, but you didn't really have designer fashion stores off of Broadway. So I think it was just so compelling what they set up there. And I think it was because of having a presence in Soho and obviously the international audience that New York brings your way that they were able to get into these secondary markets. So, you know, there are two other most important markets for parachute other than the American market was Italy and Japan. And they were, you know, they were, uh, Japanese people went crazy for parachute. They were amongst the first to discover them in New York. And I think because of the New York store, parachute secured licensing agreements to distribute their clothes to more than 30 stores in Japan during the 1980s. I think there was always like these certain criteria for stores too, like off the main drag, a little bit hidden, a little bit gritty to, to really play up this sense of discovery. I think they were very careful with advertising and chose very, very carefully where they were going to run ads. So, you know, magazines like ID in England or details in GQ in the, in the States. And actually GQ used to give them free ad space just because the, they upped the magazine. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you know you've really made a cultural impact. <laughs> no kidding. But, but here's where I should really talk about some of these people that they had working for them because... I think they were smart to realize that you need you need these authentic underground people running your stores and being almost like the public interface of your brand to make it work. So in New York, they had a guy named Morgan Allard, who was actually from, from Quebec, an, an old uh, Le Chateau colleague of theirs. And in Los Angeles, they had a guy named John Shangoli, who ran all the West Coast stores. And I think these were just guys who were very just cool, good at retail, understood merchandising, understood selling clothes. But those two guys were able to build up this staff that was cool, artistic, very good looking and looked good in parachute clothes. So it was really that like the staff brought in their peer group and sold to their peers. But at the same time, they were aspirational figures for a more mainstream clientele. And I think in the 
in the Soho store in New York in particular, like the people who work there is, it's really amazing. So you had, you know, artist and illustrator Ruben Toledo. Yes. Celebrity stylist and former Vogue and Vanity Fair editor Elizabeth Saltzman. Photographer David LaChapelle worked there briefly. Uh, undefeated co-founder Eddie Cruz and James Jebbia of Supreme were all Parachute New York alumni. So I find that, especially in the case of James Jebbia and Eddie Cruz, right? Like these two big kind of streetwear brands today got their start at Parachute. And I don't want to say that they, you know, they've obviously been innovative in their own respect, but I think it's, I think it's an interesting to me connection that you have Parachute in the 80s as one of these brands, say like Willy Ware or Stussy or Dapper Dan, who was really kind of paving the way for the explosion of streetwear that would come in the 90s. And then at the same time, you have these people working at the store who would be responsible for this explosion of streetwear. It's fascinating. We've already done an episode on Biba. So listeners, if you would like to tune back into that to learn a bit more about them, but but like Biba, Parachute was a very vibey hangout scene. It wasn't just a retail destination. And Alexis, you noted in the book, I love this story, that Andy Warhol often ate lunch on the bleachers of the Soho store and while surveying the crowds and was known to occasionally poach a member from the attractive staff to work for him at Interview Magazine, which I just love. I mean, that paints a picture fully and completely. So, Oh, yeah. No, it's great. And I think, again, it comes back to Morgan Ellard, who, who ran, who was the New York partner of Parachute and ran all the New York stores. So he was friends with Warhol, I think, just through, he was a guy on the scene in downtown Manhattan himself and, and, and knew everybody, you know, like he used to go clubbing with Cher. You know? mm-hmm. uh, but I think Andy, <laughs> Andy Warhol would just come in and hang out all the time. And just check out the scene. Like the Soho store had a full set of stadium bleachers in the store. They encouraged loitering, right? Like they wanted people to hang out. They wanted cool people in the space hanging out. So obviously he was there checking out who was there. And I think it was because of Andy Warhol and how much he liked the brand. Parachute regularly ran ads in Interview Magazine. Mm -hmm. And he gave them a fabulous discount just because because he liked the brand so much. But I'm going to circle back to what, you were saying about Biba. I mean, Nicola is, is British, as, as I already mentioned. So she was well familiar with Biba. Yeah, I think she was. She came of age, right? Like she was a fashion student in London in the 60s. So for sure, she was aware of Biba. And I know in conversation with me, she had talked a lot about Mary Quant, but also the stylist, Carolyn Baker, right? Who worked a lot with Vivian Westwood, but was also um, the stylist for that magazine, British magazine, Nova. So she cited the two of them as really big influences on her as a young designer in England. I think also, you know, both Harry and Nicole were so well-traveled. Like while they were working for Le Chateau, they would go on a lot of these trend sourcing trips to Europe and especially in Italy. And I remember Harry saying like the style of retail in Italy, you know, in the mid seventies, like he mentioned Fiorucci, you know, the first Fiorucci store. Um, and I think that has a big connection to, to Parachute too. But yeah, they must have been aware of Biba. And, and also how seductive a carnivalesque, cool and like glossy scene can be to sell clothes to a mainstream clientele. Mm-hmm. You know, these are stores where a truly underground person could come in and feel like they were in a familiar space, right? It's akin to the type of places they would be hanging out, nightclubs, art galleries, whatever. 
But for the mainstream clientele, I think these stores were welcoming in places that true subcultural spaces might not be. So there was an accessibility and like almost this like voyeuristic, like come look at all the freaks thing, you know, <laughs> a little bit. But it was really, I think in all of these cases, Biba, Fiorucci, that what you're looking at is the selling of an experience and, and of an att- a very attractive alternative lifestyle and something that you can buy, like cool that is acquirable, right? Like you can buy a little piece of this cool. And maybe if you're not cool, a bit of that shine will rub off on you if you buy some of the clothes or things that are offered there. So Warhol was not the only celebrity client. There were so many. Who were some of the other ones that were kind of like setting that aspirational stage for for the everyday customer? I think a big part of Parachute's success was very serendipitous in that they opened in New York in 1980 and MTV launched in 1981, right? So all of a sudden, the way that music is consumed completely changes. And all of a sudden, it's not enough just to have a great song anymore. You need this whole image to go along with your song in the music video format. So, you know, rock stars and pop stars flock to Parachute to to be outfitted, right? To be outfitted for, for videos and tours and whatever. And I think once you have rock stars coming, buying the clothes, wearing them in shows or in videos, then all of a sudden you get entourages and teenage fans Mm -hmm. following. So I think it was like a a windfall. And I think MTV itself is kind of interesting and similar to Parachute in that here's a, a network that is packaging subculture for a suburban clientele, right? And, um, I think it was Ruben Toledo when I was talking to him described Parachute as the MTV of fashion. And it took me a while to maybe get what he was saying, but I think that's what it is, right? That both were selling this kind of like cleaned up, glossy version of subculture to the masses. But in terms of people who were shopping at Parachute, I think it's easier to say who who didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger would often come in to the Soho store they would close sections of the shop off to him so that he could try on clothes and then like practice dancing. Right. And and I remember Morgan saying, watching him, like it was all business. This was not like fun dancing. He was, he was working, right. Like he was working to get these stage outfits. Miles Davis came into the LA store. John Shangoli told me that that was one of the highlights of his whole career, you know, helping Miles Davis. Mm -hmm. Michael Jackson wore parachute on the promo photos for Thriller. Madonna wore a parachute at her Live Aid concert. Duran Duran, for their 1984 world tour, chose a parachute jacket, uh, it, the style called the Clark Gable jacket that was inspired a bit by the Eisenhower jacket of World War II, to give away to fans on uh, press stops on their tour. And finally, the, Nicola and Harry had a really long professional and personal relationship with Peter Gabriel. They worked with him for years, designing tour wardrobes for him and his whole band. And, you know, he joked around saying that, you know, at the time he was doing this thing where he would dive off the stage into the crowd. And every time he would be carried back to the stage, his clothes would be ripped off. So he was going through tons of wardrobe for his stage show. And I think he was at a show here in Montreal. He asked to meet them, maybe looking for a bit of a discount. (laughs) But in the end, I think that they ended up being good friends and and Nicola actually kept working for him long after Parachute shut down. 
1993. And he was kind enough. He lent us some of his personal tour clothes for our exhibition. He gave us the rights to his music. And, and I think all of that was really a testament to his, to just his fondness for, for Nicola and Harry as, as friends, not just um, collaborators. So what happened in 1993? What led to the business shutting down exactly? I think there was many factors. I think Nickel and Harry were both uh, creative people. They weren't business people. So it was almost like the business grew. They were almost victims of their own success, you could say, right? Like Nicholas said to me really bluntly, it just wasn't fun anymore when you're spending all your time on the phone talking to store managers, working out stock and all of this, you know, there's not that much time left for designing. And I think that's what the two of them really liked. They liked, they liked the creative process and maybe not the business side of things. I think the other factor was that by the early 1990s, you have a lot of other brands opening their own stores. So, you know, that, that was something that came up a lot in discussions that in the early 80s, you didn't have a lot of fashion brands with their own dedicated stores, right? Like you were, you would wholesale or whatever. So I think competition was much, also much more stiff by the early nineties. And I think in cases like maybe neighborhoods like Soho in New York. It got priced out. <laughs> they got priced out. They were part of that second wave of gentrification, right? Yeah. Like they kickstarted the, the kind of retail gentrification of, of Soho. And in the end, you know, that classic tale of like the artists and cool people make it cool. And then they get priced out when all of the fancy people want to move into the fancy lofts upstairs, upstairs, right? Yep, absolutely. I mean, it's just a cyclical thing in New York. Like, <laughs> it never oh, ends. totally. <laughs> no, no. I mean, the same thing's happening here now too, right? Like, Montreal's not cheap like it, like it used to be. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the exhibition, if we can. If people are lucky enough to catch the exhibition at the McCord kind of what can they expect to see in the show? And also, I'm wondering if you have any particular favorite garments that appear in the exhibition or maybe even the book. Well, it's it's hard. I feel like with Parachute, it's very hard to pick one thing. There is one coat. It's called the Sheriff's Coat. And it's we have it styled in the exhibition with a T-shirt and a pair of jodhpurs, but it can also be worn as a dress. Oh, cool. But actually, Steve Buscemi wore it on an episode of Miami Vice. Parachute Parachute supplied wardrobe for Miami Vice's third season. The designer, Milena Cananero, wanted to revamp the show a little bit and make it a bit edgier in terms of its aesthetic. So they actually came to Parachute as like a prime supplier of wardrobe. This makes perfect sense. It does, you know, and, and, and it's funny, I watched a lot of Miami Vice in my research and definitely lots of the drug dealers and bad guys are wearing <laughs> parachute on the show, including Steve Buscemi, who looks like he's about 12 years old in one episode in which he's playing a drug dealer wearing my sheriff's coat. So I think that would have to be my favorite. Your pick. In terms of the exhibition, we have over 60 ensembles, including, like I said, some, some of Peter Gabriel's tour wardrobe. Lots of archives, lots of photos and, and video content. The, the show can be seen as kind of a, a retrospective of the brand. Mm-hmm. But for me, the, the, the question that I tried to answer in the show was, how do you transform a, an underground subcultural style of dress into an international sophisticated designer fashion brand? So, so that's kind of, a, it's, it's an exhibition in five sections where we talk about everything from the celebrity culture, postmodern design, the new wave beginnings, the stores, 
but yeah, I think that's, that's the question that we're trying to answer. How do you, how do you do this? How do you transform subculture for a mainstream audience? Mm -hmm. And that even parlays back into kind of what you mentioned earlier about kind of like setting the stage for contemporary streetwear that we see today. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think streetwear is something that's really hard to define, right? Like so many people have different definitions of it, but, but for me, when I look at parachute, there's certain things that are, that are present that I see as what I've been calling proto streetwear. So definitely that it's a casual style of dress, right? Like this isn't, this isn't formal fashion that you have the use of logos. Like the logo was very important for parachute. And again, this is about selling to your peers, right? Like a logoed garment is cheap, maybe $20 for a t-shirt. But if you wear that out into a nightclub, right? Like you're advertising this brand to other like-minded individuals. So logos were always really important. I think a connection to active sports clothing and sports uniforms is a factor. And then finally, I think just this connection to an authentic urban underground scene that revolves around music. But streetwear is so vast. And I think in the 80s, you see so many different designers starting to design along these lines. You know, you can't underestimate the importance of, say, hip hop on the development of streetwear too, right? Like For sure. Parachute, parachute came out of the new wave scene, but, but I think there was many people working connected to different musical scenes at the time. They're working in different vernaculars, really. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and then, like I said, I think, I think, you know, what they did was they commodified cool urban life and sold, like I said, this, this urban underground fantasy experience. And I think that's something that continues today in retailing in, in general, right? These like big minimal store spaces where the experience is, is as important as the product that you're buying or the experience helps sell your product, you know? Well, in terms of like what I see in branding in New York right now, there are certain brands that don't even have clothes in the store. So it's not a store. <laughs> it's actually just like a, a, like a one giant like Instagram setup where there's like giveaways and music and all these other other things and that the the clothes are kind of like completely tangential to the branding. Yeah. You can just order the clothes online if you want them. They don't have to be in the store. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that that's crazy. That's crazy to me. And I think like Parachute, I think the clothing, like I don't want to underestimate at all that they had a really solid fashion product, well-made, well-fitting, and that just worked for a wide range of people, like young, old, different body types, you know, it was a really accessible brand that wasn't high fashion prices either, right? Like the idea of Parachute was to include, not exclude. And I think it again comes back to this, this desire of Harry's to want to be able to offer good design to the masses. And that like, that through a Parachute store that you could educate people about, about cutting edge design in a non-elitist way. Well, I think that our conversation today is going to have a lot of people who were not familiar with Parachute Googling it immediately so they can check out exactly what we've been talking about. But if people are also interested in picking up a copy of the exhibition catalog, how potentially could they do that? Well, I'll say, first of all, our exhibition is on until April 24th. Absolutely. Uh, if you're not able to come to Montreal, I would say maybe check out the McCord Museum's website because we've offered, you know, virtual tours, there's talks, there's, there's video content that you can see online if you can't make it in person. And as for the book, we, we produced an, a company and catalog with 
Peron Rodinger of, of Los Angeles, who designed and published it. Right now, we're sold out. We're waiting for more copies to arrive. So I think it will be sometime in the month of March. We'll have a small number on site at the McCord Museum. And then I think they'll also be available at Idea Books in London. We only made a really small run. Like this is a very limited edition kind of art book. And, and it's my hope moving forward that maybe we can, we can find a way to get a, a, second, a second more commercial edition published at, at some point. So, so fingers crossed, this isn't the end of, of the parachute road for me just yet. And we will definitely keep our listeners um, posted on that development if it happens. So Alexis, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your wonderful exhibition and book on Parachute. I learned a ton about, I, I knew who they were before, but I learned so, so much about, you know, the, their, their place in this bigger cultural zeitgeist by, by reading your book. So thank you. Thanks again for having me. Alexis, thank you so much for sharing all of your work on Parachute with us. This is one of the reasons why we always say we can make the show indefinitely because there's so much research left to be done on brands like mm-hmm. Parachute, as Alexis has demonstrated with her original research for this book and exhibition. And you know, April, I thought it particularly interesting and in what she had to say about Parachute's legacy in terms of the current popularity of streetwear. Yep, yep. I, I feel like, you know, obviously fashion history is always informing fashion's presence. So let's not forget about that. And also, I just read this really interesting article the other day by fashion journalist Vanessa Friedman of the New York Times, and it was entitled, Why Streetwear is Dead. And before anybody who's a big streetwear fan or a sneakerhead out there keels over from that statement, she wasn't saying that streetwear was over. Basically, she was arguing that the term streetwear as a term, is dead because now style from the quote-unquote street has been entirely co-opted by historic high fashion brands like Balenciaga and Givenchy and Louis Vuitton. And so it's just fashion now. So it's the term that is obsolete is kind of what she was arguing. And there is this entire precedent in the history of fashion where over and over again we see subcultural styles being subsumed by this like hierarchical fashion system. The fashion system will always like hunt for that cool factor. And that's kind of like how that subcultural stuff translates into high fashion a lot of times. Absolutely. Certainly nothing new. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the legacy of the subversive 80s in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram where we post images to accompany each week's episodes. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you all soon. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.